Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 342. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 342 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and mixer Steve Sykes, who has worked with Stanley Clark, Enrique Iglesias, Al Jarreau, and many, many, many others. And he joins us from his studio in Los Angeles to talk about his journey. Based on how that conversation went, I think we're probably going to have Steve back sometime soon because there's just so much more to tell. He's a very enthusiastic and fun person to talk to, and we had a great time. So very much looking forward to him being on the show. Steve Sykes coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about reclaimed wood walls. Of course, this is just a continued discussion of my um, journey into turning my room into Adobe Atmos Mix Room. And the aesthetic parts come first. So as I mentioned in my last episode, I was having my buddy Dan Deshera come on over to uh, lay out some reclaimed wood onto the walls. What that means, if, if you're not familiar with that, it's basically you're taking wood that is discarded from somebody's fence you know, big long boards, and they all kind of have a particular different look to them. You know, some of them are paint stained. Some of them have knots. Some of them have, they're sun worn. So they're a little maybe uh, white or, or, or faded a bit. Uh, some are really dark. Some are really light. Yeah. And the coloring really depends on not only the type of wood, but also the, um, the paint that was on there before. Dan goes through with a wire brush and he scrapes all the boards. He showed up in uh, his pickup truck with a ton of wood. And I thought, there's no way we're gonna get through all that wood. And so I picked out a few boards and was like, okay, that's cool. But I was wrong. We used up almost all of the wood to my utter surprise. So the, pr the process of that is, is basically you go through the boards, you pick out the, you know, you, you, you think, well, I want this side or I want this side. And then you start to lay them out outside and you kind of figure out a general pattern. So while Dan was doing all the hard work of measuring and cutting, I was just saying, okay, let's go with this board next, this board next, this board next. He was doing all the hard work. I was basically calling it out of how it was going to go. And we did the first wall, I think on Tuesday. And I think we did, or no, on Monday. And then we did the, um, we did the, that's the back wall. And then we did the front wall on Wednesday. Yeah. And, you know, we're on our feet all day. We're walking back and forth uh, between the studio and the outside, you know, to choose wood, to cut wood, et cetera, et cetera. Man, I tell you, being that we all in our profession typically sit on our butts, except for, say, those who are, you know, boom operators on film sets or or doing uh, television. Um, <laughs> I was worn out at the end of the day. I think I had uh, on my Fitbit, I think it said I had like 14,000. I want to say, yeah, I think it was 14 or 15,000 steps that day. 
Long story short, it looks amazing. And some of the boards are thinner than others. So what it does is, is it takes a flat wall and it, it makes it irregular. You know, it, it breaks up uh, the sound waves that are hitting it a bit. The minute the last wall went in, I could hear a difference immediately. Actually, I could hear a difference with the, the first wall done. And then once the, the front wall got put in, I was just, I was over the top with it. I was, I was loving it. Looks really great. And it just, it changes your perspective on your space. It really does. So if, uh, if you're in the Bay Area and you want to get a hold of Dan, I'm happy to refer any of you to him because he, he does great work. If you're not, uh, the trick really is, you know, if you want to do it on your own, you can totally do it on your own. Basically, it's a it's a process of finding where all the studs are, marking where the studs are. Uh, we did it with a nail gun, and uh, you got to have a saw, and you just got to be patient and go board by board. And what I found it very similar to is when you're tracking a band and you're making decisions about overdubs, you know? You you put up board, you put up the first board and then the next board is based on that board. And you know, you start to think, okay, well, we got some browns in here, let's get some grays and some darker colors, and oh, there's some reds. And you build it up like you would a song. And it really at the end of it, you know, in the, or actually at the beginning of it, you could see all the individual boards, but by the end of it, you can see the thing as a whole and it's just beautiful and everything has its different coloring and shape and really amazing i will post some uh, pictures on social media uh, you can follow me on instagram of course the working class audio instagram account which uh, is at working class audio i'll put a link well actually the link's already in the show notes you can check it out so that's that yeah reclaimed wood wall walls plural and uh, looks fantastic and Dan rose to the occasion and just, it, he made it look so easy. I'm, I'm just stunned at how good it looks. So that's it. Reclaim wood walls. Check it out. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Steve Sykes, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Sure. Well, great to be here. Thank you for having me. You've got an interesting background that geographically jumps from Philadelphia to Denver to Los Angeles to Miami. Yeah. You're a player. You're an engineer. So let's start in Philadelphia, if we could, and talk about your upbringing with your mother, who was a booking agent for jazz musicians and bands in the 50s. Tell me about that, about growing up and, and being around that whole thing. You know, what, what was it like to see Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers back then, for example? It was stunning. I mean, you know, I was just a little kid. I was like, you know, under 10. And my mom started taking me to these, the, uh, these concerts when I was probably around six, seven years old. And, uh, it went on until I was a young teenager, adolescent, and I started doing my own band, so I didn't have time to go with her anymore. Basically, going to see these guys, it was like an it was an eye-opening experience because what really got me was I could see the dedication in these men when when they would play. And I had always been around music. I mean, we had people like Nina Simone come to our house and, and audition on my mom's piano when I was a little toddler, you know, r- running around under the piano. So, gee... I don't know, when you asked me what it was like to go see them, it was just a fascinating experience for a little kid. And, you know, what what do you know as a little kid except you love it? You just love it. It was always an adventure because we lived in Philadelphia and she would take me to see these artists a lot of times in New York. We'd get on the train, we'd go to New York and we'd go to places like Basin Street East. I would sit in front of Buddy Rich and the big band, like five feet five feet from his drum set right in front of him. So I was immersed in this stuff when I was young. I used to go to a place called the Metropole Cafe with my mom, and she used to take me to see Lionel Hampton, Gene Krupa. Mm. We're talking about the old guard here. We are, and it's interesting. My record, my vinyl collection is primarily comprised of artists like this and of that time period. So I'm particularly fascinated with that. And it's interesting because it puts a perspective on when you see, like, I don't know how many times in my life that, you know, a band will be out playing and I'll think, ah, oh, should I go see them? Ah, I'm tired tonight. I'm going to stay in. Right. And then you look at these records that that I've got, for example, and you think, oh, what 
an opportunity it would have been to go see that in person. And here I am in the modern day, kind of blowing things off, thinking, ah, just stay home. And right, sure. It, it just gives uh, a lot of perspective in, uh, about music and live music in particular. Sure, sure. My mom took me to see James Brown when I was 12. Oh, what a great <laughs> mom you had. Yeah, she was wonderful. Really wonderful. She was, uh, I guess, a, a, a rarity at that time. I was raised by a you know wonderful single mother, grew up in Philadelphia, and she became a booking agent, a jazz booking agent. And you, you know how, what a rare thing that was in the 50s? It was unheard of. Pretty rare. Yeah. And she booked mainly uh, jazz music, mainly organ trios. And uh, at one point she booked Jimmy Smith. So I got to see him as well. And mainly, mainly black artists. She booked. She she really had an affinity with with soul and black artists. That's why I was so well exposed to that as a kid. And I'm I'm so grateful that I had that upbringing. What was your experience as a player in Philadelphia? Well, let me ask you. Starting from when? When when I was like you know my first bands or when I let's say professional gigs. When you were doing gigs that you know maybe you were a teenager getting into clubs that you weren't old enough to play in. That began because a very dear friend of my mom's named Skeets McLean was one of the bass players in, in the early Ray Charles band. <laughs> he also played gigs that my mom booked for him. He became like a mentor to me. And he got me in a, a couple of gigs in South Jersey. Uh, boy, I was way above my head at that point, you know, <laughs> because I, I don't really, l l let me first tell you, I don't really have a real musical education other than self-taught. I'm completely self-taught at everything I've ever done in my life. I can tell you that I'm a high school dropout. I have a 10th grade education mm -hmm. and I'm an avid reader. And that's what got me through my life the whole time because I just kept reading and studying and I just, the school didn't have anything I wanted to learn <laughs> at that time in my life anyway. You know, of course, I have regrets now looking back on it, but not too many. I've done okay. <laughs> now, you went to high school with Stanley Clark. Yes. So Stanley and I had this band called the Blues Demonstration. It was like a rock power trio that we did, did blues. Mm -hmm. And we played frat parties and not any real clubs other than coffee houses. We played at a place called the Artist's Hut in Philadelphia. And I didn't start really getting into clubs until I uh, wound up joining this band called Sweet Stephen Chain. And then, of course, it went from clubs to big rock concerts. And we got signed to Atlantic Records. By Ahmed Erdogan. Right, right. Mm -hmm. It was a great fun time. It was a really great fun time. Let me ask you this. As a player, your first time in a studio... Can you tell me about that experience? And were you paying attention to what was going on on the recording side of it, or were you solely focused on the playing end? I was solely focused on the playing. I, the funny, th funny thing was, I didn't want to really know about engineering until much later into my 20s. But the first time I went in the studio was with the band The Forms. And I'll never forget, my mom paid for the session. <laughs> okay. And... We cut, I should have been more prepared to have the, I still have the 45 mm. of one of the things we cut from, the, it was like 1964. And I heard the playback come over the monitors. And at that point I was just smitten. I was, I was hooked. It was kind of like, oh my God, listen to that. Listen to that reverb. Oh man. It, it just blew my mind. The, the playback coming back from that point on, I always knew I wanted to be in the studio and I, I wanted to make records, however I could do it. But I was still primarily focused on, on being a great musician. Mm -hmm. 
And I worked and worked on that on my own. I studied, I studied some of the Berkeley guitar methods independently, never having gone to Berkeley College of Music. And I really, really worked as hard as I could to become a player, to learn how to read music as well. I became a reader. I became a chart writer. At one point, I even wound up conducting uh, members of the Denver Symphony on jingle dates in Denver when I moved there. So I worked really, really mm. hard to, to make my lack of education become an education in itself. And I want to talk about that. You, why did you grow tired of Philadelphia and decide to make a trip to L.A.? What was it about Philadelphia that you, you grew tired of? I grew tired of, of the grayness of it. Mm. I realized that at that point, I thought that the best way for me to make a mark in the music industry would be to go to Los Angeles. So I think a lot of people get tired of the place they were born and want to move away. Yeah. I think it's a fairly common thing. However, I don't have any desire to really move back there. <laughs> so where, where are you living now? I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Woodland Hills. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, I feel the same way. I grew up in southern New Mexico. I have no desire to go back. Right, right. Now, what I find interesting is that you were on your way to Los Angeles. You stopped in Denver. For lunch. And you ended up staying for nine years. Yes. <laughs> which is really funny. And right. you stopped into, if I have it correct, you stopped into a guitar store. It was a music store called Music City on Colfax Avenue uh -huh. in Denver. And back in those days, the way a musician would look for a gig, there would always be like a bulletin board in the music store with little stick pins. Guitar player looking for band, band looking for guitar player, drummer looking for a gig, all that. That's how you would do it, you know, in the 60s. Nobody had cell phones, of course, or internet. So I was—I just figured I'd just stop in. What the hell? I was you know, driving on Route 70 West, and I was tired, and it was time for lunch. So I walked in, and I would always noodle on a guitar. So I picked up a guitar and started noodling. And these two guys walk in the store that happened to be, I didn't know them then, it was Philip Bailey and Larry Dunn. And they came over, and they really liked what they heard <laughs> me playing. And they asked if I wanted to sit in with, the, with their band that night. And their band was called Friends and Love, named after an old Chuck Mangione album. And I can imagine, like, if I'm in a, in a store and I'm playing and somebody says, hey, come sit in tonight, I would do that. But then I would say, okay, but I need to leave the next day. So what prompted you to stay? Well, the bottom line was I didn't really have any plans. <laughs> you see, I was just driving west. So why not? You know, that was a time in our lives. I was, you know, I was like 19 years old. I had a little bit of money from a job I had been working parking cars in Philadelphia before I left. Mm -hmm. And I worked at a restaurant as a busboy for a while, too, to get those, save up the money to buy my Volkswagen bus and drive. So on that trip, it was just kind of like, let's see what happens. So I really had, I, I had nowhere to be. So I just sat in with the band. We all loved each other, and we became the hottest band in Denver. It was called Friends in Love. It was myself on guitar, a drummer named Larry Thompson, still in Denver, a wonderful drummer, a bass player named Hilliard Wilson, who is, he's out here as well, and Philip Bailey singing, Larry Dunn, and another guy named Carl Carwell singing and, and playing percussion. Mm. And we had a, a sax player that actually came out with me at one point named Greg Scott from Philadelphia. And I'm telling you, this band was smoking. It was great. Really, really great. 
And we we hooked up with this producer. He was a guy from Chicago named Dick Darnell. And he was working in Denver doing a lot of radio jingles. And we started doing that as a studio band as well. So this huh. really got got my my reading locked in and my, my chops as a player and, and learning detail as a musician. And also, I started to very slightly become interested in what was going on on the other side of the glass. This is where it begins. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Not a whole lot, because to me at that point, I have to, I'm ashamed to say it, but the engineer was always the enemy to me. <laughs> <laughs> those were the guys in the white coats in those days. <laughs> and, you know, enemy might be too strong of a word, but right. but, but what I mean, the guys that, that were like basically TV repairmen, that's right. how I looked at them. You know, they weren't, they weren't music people. Huh. And I wanted to be with, with music people. It was only later on when I found out that the greatest amongst us happened to be music people. Yeah. The greatest engineers and producers. They are music people. Yeah. So I just got a rough start with some of the guys that were not. <laughs> so this is around 1975. The band is opening for the Beach Boys, Chicago, Fleetwood Mac. Well, this was this was not that same band. Oh, this is let, a different let, band. No, no. Let, let me explain to you that the band Friends and Love... There was this band called Earth, Wind, and Fire from Chicago that was coming through town. Mm -hmm. This was after we had been together almost a year as friends in love, okay? And the Earth, Wind, and Fire band was Maurice White, Verdine, the bass player, mm -hmm. and they had a girl singer. And I, I don't remember the names of all the other guys in the band. But at any rate, they came through town and they were kind of like headlining small venues. And we got the gig opening for them. Well, we opened for them, and when we were done opening for them, we kind of like blew the house down, as you can imagine, with Philip Bailey and Larry Dunn as our front. Mm -hmm. And I was at that point, even if I say so myself, I was a good guitar player. I'm not now. <laughs> but, <laughs> at one point, I was really going for it as a, as a, as a player. And the band was just on fire, and we, we just blew our food and fire off the stage at that point. Well, Maurice, being the very smart guy that, that he was, he made a side deal with Philip and Larry if they would come to L.A. with him and become part of Earth, Wind & Fire. So that's how our Friends and Love Band kind of folded up, basically. And Philip and Larry went with Maurice and Verdine, and they became the Earth, Wind & Fire that we all know and love. And you ultimately ended up in Los Angeles, is that right? No, I, I stayed in Denver. Oh, so, even so longer. So we're, we're, we're still talking like 1971 now. Oh, okay. okay. Right. I stayed in Denver with the drummer, wonderful drummer, and the bass player. And we found a keyboard guy named Al Campbell. We became the number one studio band doing radio jingles in Denver. It was a pretty hot jingle market during those years. And that's what I did. Two, three, four days a week, I was playing guitar on, on some jingle for a bank. We did Frontier Airlines. We did all sorts of jingles, and Dick produced it. Dick had already been a producer in Chicago. He had done a, a great R&B band named Baby Huey and the Babysitters that were signed to Curtis Mayfield's label back then. But in Denver, he loved Denver, and he settled there, and, and, and this is what we did. We became a great studio band that eventually started going out doing live gigs. Hmm. And the band, we hooked up with a, a songwriter-singer named Gerard McMahon, and we became a band called Family Circle of Music with Gerard as our front. And that now is leading into not more like 1974 when we got signed to Caribou. Mm. That band was also on fire. 
So it was worthwhile to have stayed in Denver, even though Philip and Larry left us. That was the band that did the Beach Boys stuff. How long did that band run? And when when did you decide to leave Denver? Okay, well, that band, we wound up making our premier album at Caribou Ranch. We were signed by Jimmy Gersio, who was the producer and manager of Chicago. Mm -hmm. He also did the Buckinghams. Remember the Buckinghams? Kind of a drag, all those records. I don't remember those records. It was before your time then. Yeah, that's before my time. <laughs> okay. Well, at any rate, we got signed to the label. We made our album up there. Phil Ramone actually did some of the engineering on it. Hmm. Then we went, out, we went out on tour to promote the album. And the tour we went on was Beach Boys, Chicago, Fleetwood Mac. I forget some of the, some of the other artists, but those were the main, you know, the big, big three. And we were the opener and we did like, I don't know, we did like 20 some cities. We played here in LA at Anaheim Stadium. We did Denver, Mile High Stadium. We did all sorts of gigs. But unfortunately, the album never, never took off. So that kind of folded up. And so here we are back in Denver again, no record deal, no band. The band actually split up. I had already gotten married at that point. I found myself with a, a one-year-old baby, a wife, no income at all. Think about this. No education now, mm. because I told you I'm a high school dropout, okay? Living in Denver. We actually became homeless, okay? Living in, in a Ford LTD. Wow. Until I got a job at a, a deli called the Bagel Deli in, in Denver. This I was doing manpower jobs every morning, and we were camping every night. That's what homeless was like for us in Colorado. I finally, after a couple of months of manpower jobs, manpower, is, it's, it's temporary day labor. And you go there and you wait in the morning and see if somebody picks you to break concrete for a day. What I think now is called a day laborer job. Day laborer, right, right. That's what it'd be called now. So I finally got the job in, in a deli making sandwiches. And after about a week at the deli, they were teaching me how to use the meat slicer. And first of all, I was completely depressed that I even had to get a job at the deli after being on tour with the Beach Boys in Chicago, okay? Mm. Here I am back at a day job, penniless, and, and trying to get back on my feet again. Well, I'm learning how to use a meat slicer, and I'm slicing some pastrami and wasn't paying close enough attention with my left hand. I'm going zip, zip, zip. You know those big circular blades? Oh, yeah. Zip, 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 zip. Whoops. I sliced the tips of my fingers off on my left hand in the meat slicer. They send me to the emergency room. The little flaps hanging off, you know, the tips of my fingers. Now, I'm a guitar player. Yeah. This is not a good thing. They send me to the emergency room. Mind you, I'd only been on the job a week. They send me to the emergency room. I come back, and I know this is going to sound like a terrible sob story, but it, it's a true story. <laughs> I'm back from the emergency room, my hand completely bandaged. You can't imagine the thoughts going through my brain. How am I ever going to get out of this deli? I may never play guitar again in my life, is what I'm thinking. Right. And all of a sudden, the payphone rings in the deli. And one of the waitresses says, Steve, it's for you. I pick up the payphone and a voice on the other end says, Steve, this is Tommy Matola. <laughs> I manage Hall and Oates. Now, mind you, I was friendly with, with, with John Oates from Philadelphia. I had done sessions with him. So we knew each other. And Kenny Passarelli became the bass player for Hall and Oates. <sighs> and he told them to call me at the deli. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so Tommy Matola's on the payphone. He says, listen, 
I have X amount of dollars, which is a high sum. I think it was, it was like a lot of money. I think it was like, I don't know, something like 1400 a week or something for rehearsals. Don't quote me on that, but it was a lot. I remember hmm. that. And can you, I have a plane ticket. Can you be in New York by Friday to start rehearsals with Hall & Oates? They just had the hit single, Sarah Smile. Oh. And of course, I had to tearfully say no. <laughs> because of the deli accident. Of course, I couldn't play guitar. I couldn't play guitar at all. So, so I had to turn him down, of course, you know, and, and that was that. And I was, if anybody wanted to be suicidal at that point, it would have been me. But however, I wasn't. <laughs> but you must have been very upset, obviously. I was extremely upset. Of course I was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was devastating for that to happen. It was devastating to have to get a job in the deli after the big tour, and then devastating to get that call to join Hall and & Oates and have to turn it down. So what I decided to do during the time I stayed at that deli, for mo and I stayed there for oh, a good year, I thought that I'd never play guitar again. I started practicing to be a drummer, and I went to a pawn shop, and I got a practice pad Remo set mm -hmm. and a Ludwig Speed King pedal and a hi-hat and stand. And I got this book that taught me patterns. And I got an electronic metronome with earbuds. They were hard to find then, electronic metronomes. And this was maybe 76 now, 77. And I practiced my butt off. Every night after the deli, we had a house that we rented with a little basement. By the way, I was able to finally rent something with my deli money. <laughs> okay. Right, you weren't camping anymore at that uh, point. No, no, we were not homeless at that point. I practiced every single night until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore with a metronome to try and learn to play grooves as a drummer. Hmm. And my dear friend, Hilliard Wilson, who was the original bass player, I start, told you about the beginning of the story with Philip Bailey. He was kind enough to work with me and we formed a band called Network. And I was the drummer for the band. <laughs> and we became, again, the hottest band in Denver, playing all the local clubs. We were playing, you know, supper clubs, jazz clubs and stuff. And I was playing drums. I didn't have much in the way of any chops to do fills, but I kept a really solid groove. And I did that for about a year and my fingers started growing back and fingertips. I started playing guitar again within the next couple of years and we hired a drummer. Back to playing guitar, you know. Back to playing guitar. So that's, a, you know, a, a brief description of how that all transpired. It was only after that I decided to move to L.A. I don't know if I have the story correct, but my understanding of another guitar player who suffered a similar situation was Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath. I believe he was working in a factory and he cut the tips off of his fingers and ended up wearing little caps, if I have the story wow. right, on his fingers, which gave his guitar sound a very distinct tonality. So when you said that, I was like, oh, just like Tony Iommi. You know, okay, well, accent. I might have done something like that if they didn't grow back. Yeah. <laughs> now, fast forward me to where the world of recording started to, where it became important to get on the other side of the glass. Oh, yes, it did take over. I'm passionate about it. Excellent. <laughs> After moving to L.A., I was so blessed because I had, I had some friends here that hooked me up, and I started playing on all sorts of sessions. I played guitar on a Dusty Springfield album. I did Chubby Checker. I even played guitar for Phil Spector at one point. That's a whole other story, a whole other, other interview. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. it is. But I wound up in this new wave band with a, a lady named Shandy. 
And this was in 1979, 1980, when I first moved here. I was in, in this band, Shandy, and it was with a drummer named Pat Mastolato, who is now in King Crimson, by the way, a bass player named James Rolleston, who unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago, a keyboardist named Paul Herzog, basically a, a, a four-piece. And we caught the attention of a producer, Mike Chapman. Mike, Mike Chapman, Chapman yeah. You know everything about him then. Blondie, The Knack, My Sharon. I just, I could go on and on. Oh, yeah. Avatar. Okay. Well, it was actually Mike Chapman that lit the light bulb or lit the fire for me. By this point, I had been doing sessions for so many years as a guitar player, standing behind, now standing behind the console with long cables going out to my amp, because that became the preferred way to do guitar overdubs if you weren't out there in the band doing mm -hmm. the take. Mm -hmm. But when you do get to the overdub phase, I'd always come in the control room with my pedal board, and I was one of the early guys to have a pedal board. That's how I knew the engineering bug had hit me. <laughs> I had a patch bay on my pedal board. <laughs> that I built. You needed to have knobs close by. Oh, I need all the time, right. So when Chapman started producing the band, we started working at what was called United Western, which is now East West, mm -hmm. after numerous other names it's had over the years. And I heard the playback that Mike Chapman got when we came back into the control room. And I was like, holy smokes. I've never heard anything that fantastic ever. It blew my mind, the impact he was able to get out of a rock band. I, it, it just floored me. And I was kind of like, oh my God, Mike, Mike, how did you get the kick drum to sound like that? Well, Mike was such a kind, kind guy. He actually took the time to explain to me when we were doing overdubs. This is when budgets were flowing like crazy. So studio time just got... I won't call it wasted, but studio time was like, no big deal. When I would be with him doing guitar overdubs, I would ask him questions and he would say, well, look, I'm just cutting a 300, 330 here. And he showed me every detail. I became fascinated and really, really hooked in into what he was doing, the EQing and, and mic placement. Not to mention my other dear friend, Andre Fisher, had introduced me to Al Schmidt when I first mm. moved to LA as well who you know we just lost. Yeah. And Alan, we became fast buddies also. I'll tell you an Al Schmidt story before we're done also that, that oh, please. changed yeah. my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, once I heard that, and I had been in the control room with, with Michael Chapman for so many sessions making this record, I started realizing, you know what? I could do this, and I really like this. This is like... And also, at that point, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into my 30s, and I was a union musician, and I, I would go to the union to pick up my checks for, for the union dates I had been playing on. And I never forget, this, this was the thing that, that changed me. I was standing in line to pick up my check at Local 47 on Vine Street here. And there was this big, tall guy in kind of like a powder blue stained tuxedo with graying hair holding a guitar case, waiting for his check. And I looked at him, and I thought to myself, well, I haven't become a rock star. That's going to be me, isn't it? <laughs> and I didn't like the idea of that. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I had such an uh, enormous interest in, in the technical part of engineering. I started thinking that, you know, maybe I should switch over and become an engineer because I'll still be in music and I love it and I'm, I'm fascinated by it and I can still be playing. Uh, that was kind of like, that was the turning point, the, the vision of this guy at the union. And 
I was working with the bass player at that time, James Rolleston, mm -hmm. in, in the band that Mike was producing. And he was working with, uh, uh, with another guy named John Hyatt. <laughs> I'm sure you know of, oh, right? Yeah. Okay. And there was a drummer named Daryl Verdusco playing with John Hyatt. Daryl was a good friend of James, and they were doing some song demos they had written together. And the engineer bailed. They didn't have an engineer. And I said, I'll do it. And that was the first time I ever actually engineered a session. And that would have been, that would have been like 81. How did that session go for you? It went brilliant. It was stunning. It was in a room I, I was already very familiar with. It was at a studio called Fidelity. Fidelity is in North Hollywood. It's not there anymore. I think it's called Studio City Sound now. But, but it was owned by a, a guy named Artie Rip at that point, another old guard. And there was an engineer named Joel Seufer who, who was doing all the engineering there. And I was working with him on all sorts of projects where I was standing with him at the console. And by osmosis, it was an MCI 500 in the room at that time. And by osmosis and standing there and understanding and knowing the signal flow from my own patch base and everything, my guitar patch base, I finally realized, you know what? I can do this. I know what it's supposed to sound like. I know what high, I, I read an, an incredible amount of literature on engineering at that point. I was staying up at night reading MCI alignment manuals on how to align the machines. When I decided I wanted to become an engineer, I always said that I will never ever rely on an assistant engineer to do something that I don't know how to do myself. Huh. Of course, I've changed a bit on that now because some of our young, brilliant engineers have some skills that are just out of this world that I do not have. Right. But at that point in my life, you know where I'm coming from, where I, I, I wanted to really make sure that I was, you know, a respectable engineer that knew my stuff. So I studied very, very hard for that. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I wanted to ask you if, if I could for a minute, 
Now, I don't know the facts on, on this. I'm only repeating things I have heard. Right. However, so just a comparison of Mike Chapman and Al yes. Schmidt. Now, now Al, I, I know more about than I do Mike, but right. my understanding is, is both of these gentlemen excelled at capturing what was happening on the floor. That's right. Right at that time. That's right. And, and, and just really good at capturing a live group. Yes, absolutely. Both brilliant in their own way at that, but completely opposite. For example, doing a session with Mike Chapman, he would run out into the room while we were doing a take and he'd look at the snare mic and he'd say, I got to do something about that snare. It's not irritating enough. <laughs> okay. Whereas Al Schmidt would be, hmm, let's get that sweet. Let's make this really musical and sweet. And Mike Chapman was kind of like, it doesn't hurt enough. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I mean by the opposite opposite approaches. However, you know, you know, Mike could do whatever he wanted. So I would imagine that Al and Mike both had a big impact on you as, oh, as a new tremendously. engineer. Tremendously, yeah. I'll never forget a few years into my engineering career, I was working for a string arranger named David Campbell. And David Campbell did the strings on a lot of hit records. His son is Beck, by the way, David uh, Campbell's son. Okay. Okay. But David, I haven't seen him in quite a while. I probably owe him a call. It's been a long time. But he was doing a lot of string arranging. He, he did the strings on the Bonnie Raitt hits and a lot of stuff over the years, film scores. He hired me. I had already played guitar for him, by the way. So... He hired me as a new fledgling engineer to do a string date for him with an, with an orchestra. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God. I took it and I'm like, oh, what do I do? I'm a rock guy, an uneducated rock guy. I don't know what mics to use, where to put them. I only knew how to record like a rock band at that point. Mm -hmm. Well, I was friendly enough with Al where a couple of days before the session, meanwhile, I'm shaking in my boots, okay, about doing this this orchestra session. And it was at sunset. Okay. I'm like freaking out. I called Al one night because I had that kind of relationship with him. And I said, Al, can you help me out? What do I do? And this is my Al Schmidt story. He stayed on the phone with me, Matt, for about an hour. And he, now this guy already had an enormous career in umpteen Grammys. He stayed on the phone with me, Matt, and he explained to me every single mic to use on what what pattern to use on the mic capsule, how high to put it above the string player's heads, where to put mics behind French horns. He just ran the whole thing down. I wish I could have recorded the call, but I was taking notes as he was telling me. Mm -hmm. He just ran down everything that you could possibly want to know about recording an orchestra in a one-hour phone call. And I'm forever grateful to him for that because I the orchestra date went off without a hitch. It, it sounded gorgeous. Let me piggyback on that story that yeah. directly relates to this. Okay, Al is is on the phone with you telling you how to do this date yeah. with it for strings. Yes. Okay, Steve Jenowick, who wor has worked for Al for many years. Much later, yeah. Much later. Okay. Yeah. I had a recording session book to do a 20-piece big band. Okay. I'm a rock guy. I've never right. recorded a 20-piece big band. So right. I called Steve. Perfect. Steve happened to be up in Berkeley at the time. And so I said, yeah. well, I'll, you know, that's like 10 minutes from me. I'll drive over. Let's have coffee. 
Well, actually, he and he said, "Why don't you come over here? We'll have coffee." And I'll By the way, Steve is also a sweetheart. I love him. Fantastic guy. Yeah. Sits me down over coffee. He says, "All right, how many inputs you got? What do you do? What are you doing?" And I said, "Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm thinking." He goes, "No, no, no, no. no. Let's. Why don't you do do it like this?" And he laid it out for me, and it went off without a hitch. It's right. so it's really ironic to hear your story with Al and just know that that pass down. Of, yeah, of how yeah. that works. Mm -hmm. The guy that worked that, that assisted Al before Steve was a guy named Bill Smith. Do you know Bill? Bill has been on the show. I know Bill Smith. Yeah, Bill worked with me at Cherokee, and uh, Paula over at Capital called me as a reference for Bill to get the job because I did a bunch of stuff with <laughs> Bill. Uh, we did a ton of things. Mo I did a lot of movie score recording with Stanley Clark over at Cherokee, and Bill assisted me during those years. Now Al's had a, had uh, like. Didn't Pete Dell used to work for Al? He did as well. Yeah. Yeah. Pete and Bill and Steve. Right. Pete, Bill, and Steve. That's been the, the progression of assistance with Al. Huh. Yeah. And now Steve is on his own. Yes, and, he uh, is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's funny. You know, it's a shame. I spoke to Al just a week before he passed. <sighs> we, we were all doing the audios, audio Zoom lunch thing. Oh, uh, the Wednesday lunch. The Wednesday lunch, yeah. Done over Zoom. Yeah. Mm. Where are you located? Where are you? In, I'm in, in Northern California. I'm just like 20 miles outside of San Francisco. Okay. So you can't just show up at our lunch. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I could, I honestly, and when, when things really, really kind of lighten up, I'm going to fly down and just spend the afternoon and, and oh, it'd be great. And join you great all. to hang with you. It'd yeah. be fun. Well, so take me forward in time. What is the takeaway of your your early engineering career in Los Angeles? What are the key okay. things that you take away from that time? Well, what I take away from that time is well, one of the things is that I, I've learned that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. That probably comes with aging as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the older you get, the more you realize you don't know. What I took away from, from that was a lesson in, in learning how to deal with people Keep your mouth shut in certain ways. Not not give an opinion unless you're really asked, unless you're the producer, of course. And learning to go out and move the mic to get things to sound the way you want them. I do use EQ. And sometimes I use lots of EQ as opposed to Al who uses hardly any. But nevertheless, it still comes from getting the mic where I want it first. This is an art form that we do. So there's no real rules that way in terms, if I'm going for a sound I got in my brain, nobody in the world knows what that sound is except me and my brain. And I will jump through whatever hoops I have to jump through to get that sound realized that's in my brain. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I took away from engineering is that it doesn't matter how far you got to twist a knob or push a fader to get the sound you are hearing. But the, the object is get the sound you're hearing. That's really the thing. And hopefully the sound that you're hearing is what other people will like as well. Right, right. <laughs> you see, so far I've been, I've been blessed that way. I've been very lucky. I can go back another thing because we're skipping over so much. You know, we're talking about a life story here in a oh, one yeah. hour interview. My years with doing Miami Vice, there was that as well. Tell me about that. I got recommended by a wonderful guitar player friend named Michael Thompson. Michael Thompson was playing guitar for a composer named Tim Truman, who had just gotten the Miami Vice gig after Jan Hammer. Mm -hmm. And so for three seasons, Tim Truman did all the underscore music, and I got the gig mixing all the music for the show during that time. 
huh, because Michael recommended me highly. That was an enormous, I had already done some films as well. So I got my taste in, in doing a Dolby surround before it became 5.1 using the Dolby encoders and all that stuff. But working on Miami Vice was a real trip. We mixed everything to an eight track. I believe it was a two inch eight track, hmm. a 24 track with a two inch eight track head put on it. It was an enormous machine. It was an Otari. I would go in there every week and set up Dolby SR. We had a, a 24 track Sony multi-track. Tim Truman's, all of his virtual MIDI stuff locked to Simpty and video. This is a giant setup. And I rented all this outboard gear to bring to his place where he had a Trident 75 console there. And everything ran through the console and got mixed down to eight tracks and stems on that big two inch eight track machine that we would deliver every week. It was a trip. It was a grind. It was a real grind. And during that time, it was really hard for me to accept other album work because every week it might be a different day when Tim would have the, the compositions ready to mix. And the show aired on a Friday. And I want to just point out to the audience, to really to the younger audience. Yeah. You know, if you think about it today, what we have available to us and listening to what you're saying, Steve, about what we're talking about is synchronization, synchronizing MIDI to SMPTE, right to video on top of the signal flow, analog multi-track, analog mix down deck, which eight track two inch, a little, little unusual. Everything locked, every single thing yeah. locked together. Right. That's why I say it was an enormous setup. <laughs> so kids, if you think you got it hard today, <laughs> all I can say is, is hold my beer or hold Steve's, right. hold Steve's right. beer. <laughs> and in the morning I would have to go in there because we used rental gear every week from design effects was the rental company. So they would bring in a rack of 24 Dolby SRs. Okay. <laughs> And the machines, and I would have to align all the Dolby SRs, align all the multi-tracks before I could even start. So my job at that point, I'm so glad I lived through it. I'll never do it again. Mm -hmm. But I'd go in there at like nine in the morning and start setting up. I would not come out sometimes until 5 p.m. the next day. Oh. I would have done like a, a 30... 37-hour shift sometimes in one sitting. And it had to get done. That was the grind. It had to be done because the show was airing on Friday. Things would happen with us, with me and Tim Truman sitting in there at like four o'clock in the morning. Michael Mann would call from the dubbing stage over at Universal. He'd say, Tim, listen, I've reshot a couple of scenes here, so I'm going to need another four minutes of music. So I'm sending a messenger over to pick up the mix from you. He'll be there in about an hour. And Tim says to him, I remember this night. <laughs> Tim says, what are you nuts? You expect me to compose music, record it, and mix it and have it delivered to you like now? And Michael Mann says, what's the matter with you lazy guys? You guys just turn on a computer, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was the mindset back then. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Anyway, but some of that stuff, the, f the funny thing about it was, I'm very proud of some of that stuff from back in those days. It got write-ups in Variety, the Hollywood mag, because it was one of the early stereo TV shows. 
And they were commenting on how expansive the sound was. And I mm-hmm. was really proud of that, that, that it was mentioned. You know, I know we're jumping around and glossing over things. So rather than try to walk you through chronologically, you mentioned this Miami Vice time. Tell me about some of your other favorite times in your recording career, studio events, or or just times in your life of experiences you had. Well, I have been blessed to have been able to record some of the greatest musicians in the world. You know, during my time with Stanley Clark, I got to record and mix. Oh, by the way, I reunited with Stanley here in L.A. many years after we were children together. Mm-hmm. I wound up working on a movie called Passenger 57 with Wesley Snipes that Stanley was the composer on. I got to record Freddie Hubbard, Wayne Shorter, Ndubu Chancellor, just the great, great musicians I've, I've been able to work with over my life. My dear friend, John J.R. Robinson, wonderful drummer that's mm. the most recorded drummer in history, actually. We became fast friends back in 1980 because I got the gig playing guitar on the Days of Our Lives. And he was the drummer on it. And we're still friends till this day. Matter of fact, we're working on a production together right now, he and I. I grew up with that playing in the background because my mom watched the Days of Our Lives every day. (laughs) Well, every Friday we used to go in and play the score for it. You know, John and I and Neil Steubenhouse on bass and the composer playing keyboards. But it's things like this that, that have just made me grateful to be alive and be in this business. It's, it's been such a, a, a wonderful thing, the great players. I, I don't even know where to begin. You might have to prod me a bit on this because yeah. I've done so many great sessions. I mean, your bio is like, oh my gosh, you worked with this person, this person, this person. So my question to you is, what is the key takeaway from working with great musicians and people at a high level? What, as an engineer, as a producer, as a mixer, whatever the role may be in the studio, what's the key for you? Be in record right away, whether you have the sound right or not. It doesn't matter. We are all in service to the art. That's what we really do. We're in service to the creative flow, to the art. And no matter how many technical things we we learn and get under our belt through our lives, the most important thing is capturing the magic. And the magic doesn't happen from diodes and resistors and faders and signal paths, Uh, although I've learned to make the cleanest signal path I can for anything I do. The real point is making sure that the artist gets recorded even if, if they're warming up. It doesn't matter. That's what I would tell to any young engineer. Don't be afraid to press record. What do you got to lose? Before, in the old days, it was kind of like, well, it's only tape. Record it. Just record. It doesn't matter. Well, now it's even better. It's only hard drive space. Yeah. So why not be in record? Why on earth wouldn't you be? And tell me about your modern day activities. What does your world consist of now, COVID or not, regardless? Most of the things I do are mixing these days. I think I've actually, well, because of COVID, I haven't been in the studio in a a couple of years now. My last session was Smokey Robinson about a year and a half ago. A year ago, we were doing string sessions for him. Hmm. But my daily activity right now is mixing, mainly mixing. I have clients all over the world that send me stuff on uh, WeTransfer or Dropbox or any of these things, and they send me their files, and we talk like you and I are. Mm-hmm. I'm involved with this other company called Session Wire, which allows me to send my board mix 
straight to you while we're talking as if we're on Zoom as well. Okay. Now I've, I think I've experimented a bit with session wire and I guess it's kind of along the lines of audio movers. It's a, a variation yes, on that. Except with video included. With video included. Ah. Right. So it makes it so you're like on the other side of the control room glass. I have a couple of albums coming up now that COVID is kind of hopefully dwindling. I'm doing the new David Benoit album uh, starting on August 9th. And then in September, I'm doing another Keiko Matsui album. The players on this are just out of this world. Again, it's going to be John Robinson on, on, on and Benoit. On Keiko, we have Vinnie Caliuta, Jimmy Johnson, Paul Jackson Jr., mm. Luis Conti on percussion. I could go on and on. Uh, uh, Randy Waldman, just some of the best of the best. This is my joy is getting to record these guys. Do you have a preference of the recording role you have? Do you prefer mixing over tracking or or producing? I very rarely produce because I don't like the pressure <laughs> at this point in my life. But I'm producing right now this girl with, with JR. But, but there's two of us doing it so we can bounce off of each other. I don't like being the go-between between financiers and the artist. Yeah. I always side with the artist. That's just my downfall, I guess. That's why I never became a rich guy. <laughs> well, let's. I want to touch on that a little bit about your takeaway and advice to others on money and the business of being an audio professional. What would you do different, or what have you done well? Like, if you have, if you could make different decisions about business and finance, as it relates to you know your own personal well-being, yet still being the audio professional you want to be. Would that change? No, not really. No, I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have achieved what I have in my life, considering where I started. But as a young audio professional, you see, it's hard to say this because so much has changed in the industry. There's so few studios that are still alive now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you would have asked me this even 10 years ago, I would have said, well, go to a studio and try and get a job cleaning toilets and really show them that you're really, really interested in, in becoming an audio engineer and doing whatever, you know, this applies, I think, to any profession, not just audio engineering. You got to really show the higher ups that you're really willing to do what it takes to learn the job. And also uh, to young people, always be prepared to change your point of view, to have your point of view changed by somebody that might know more than you. Mm. That was the advice I, I would give to a lot of these young guys coming out of audio schools. There's more than one way to do anything in music and art and recording. There's no hard, fast rules, but do learn the rules so you know how to break them. <laughs> you need to know how to break the rules. That's a very important thing hmm. because the only, only that way can you repeat your results. And it's very important to be able to get a tool bag of, of things that you can do that you, you know will work for you because you've stumbled upon them because you did something different. And that becomes your tool set then. So tell me, what would your advice be to that same group coming out of recording schools about the financial end of, of this game in this day and age, knowing what you know now? Go into another business. <laughs> <laughs> if you can do anything else. Uh, if you could, <laughs> no, this is a business at this point. See, it's too late for me to turn back now. Uh, but it's... It's, it's the passion that's driven me through this whole, the whole time. So if you don't have that passion, do something else. That's what I would really tell young people. You have to be as excited about getting up and, and 
hooking up microphones and recording something as you are about like like you're going to Disneyland. And that's how I feel when I when I go to do a tracking day. I'm so excited about doing this David Benoit album and the new Keiko Matsui. I'm like, I'm jumping out of my skin. It'll be so much fun. And you asked me earlier, well, financially, what do you do? You have to find a way to support yourself because there's, I don't know how to support yourself other than building up your own clientele, which is what I've done now. People that trust me to mix their music or to record them. But in the beginning, there really is no path. I hate to sound negative, but I don't see a path to any kind of financial freedom unless you can score a job as an assistant engineer at a commercial recording studio. And there's so few of them left. So what would you say, Matt, about about that? You know, do you have any differing opinions on that? Because this is what I see after watching this now for, I've been in LA for 43 years now. Yeah. At this point, and, and I've watched it when I first got to L.A., it was always hard to get a job in a studio as an engineer. And you see, I speak from some from somebody I've never assisted. I went right from from studio musician to first engineer. And as a matter of fact, I made a few enemies with engineers when I first began because of that. Hmm. It was kind of like, how dare you jump into my job? You don't know anything. And I didn't. Yeah. But I had the confidence of my musician buddies that I had played with. They were like, well, Steve's a musician. He gets it. I knew where to punch in. I could read the score and know that I'm going to I'm going to punch in the saxophone on bar 71 on the end of three. And I would never miss it. Never. Yeah, That's why I decided I was going to be a good engineer, because I knew where to punch always. Yeah, if, if you're a musician in any regard, whether or not you're a guitar player, drummer, or whatever, it certainly makes it a lot easier, you know, when somebody says, okay, we're going to punch on the end of four. And right, right. if you don't have that, that's that's a challenge, I think. You really well, have sure. to sharpen your, your skill set with regards to music if you weren't a player originally. Right. My advice to young people doing this, you must learn music. You must learn something about music. You need to be able to at least count time, count bars, even if you're not a great player. The other part of it, too, I'm sure you would agree with, and I've heard Steve Albini talk about this quite a bit, is that when you're a player, when you're in a band, you empathize with the players. You you understand. Right. If you've been in a van and you've toured and slogged it out, you have a sense of what the people you're recording are going through, if, if music and, and studio Absolutely. work is, is your gift. Absolutely. Oh, another thing I might say more on the technical end, make sure that when you're engineering, this is a, a starting out engineer, make sure that you pay ultimate attention to the player's headphone mix. That's the most important thing in a session, is that the players are happy with what they're hearing in their headphones. There's nothing more important than that, because once you got that, they can just groove like crazy. And then you just got to make sure to capture it. Let me ask you this. How have you balanced your, your work-life balance over the years? You mentioned, you know, you had a baby. Obviously, that baby's not one years old anymore. Right. And wife, how has music in the recording world coexisted with your personal life? Okay, well... I must tell you, I'm on my second wife. Okay. <laughs> okay. Of 30 years, though. Okay. And the first one didn't work out because she was not aligned with anything that I did in, in the arts. Okay. And my, my son actually is 45 years old now. 
And so he only knew, my, my son never knew me as an engineer. He only knew me as a, a, a starving musician. <laughs> That's a whole other story. This is a whole other interview. Right, but, right. But re regarding balancing a life, I don't work late into the evening anymore. And it's very important that you spend family time. It really is. My wife is very understanding. And matter of fact, I met her because she was an assistant engineer herself. Oh. My wife, before I, we met, she came from, my wife is British. She came over here from England and she had already worked with Katrina and the Waves, Walking on Sunshine. You remember that record? Yeah, completely. And she worked with Sting here in LA at a studio called Topanga Skyline. I was working on with Brenda Russell at that, the time when we met, and this would have been in 1988, and booking the studio a lot. And her name is Sarah. We became fast friends working in the studio together. She was one of the most brilliant assistant engineers I had ever worked with. So she knows it inside and out. So we were both doing crazy hours. She'd be on one session, I'd be on the other. Sometimes we wouldn't see each other for two days, and then we'd come back when we finally moved in together. We were just friends for a year until we started dating. Mm. Because I said to her one day, I said, yeah, what do you do when you're not doing sessions? And she was, you know, a single young lady. She said, I don't know, I clean the console. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, listen, take it from me from experience. You need to get out of here. And that's how we started dating. I said, let's go to a movie or something. This, this started really innocently. I said, Let, let's just not be in a, let's get out of here. And so we started dating like that. And so she really, really gets it. Did she stay engineering? No, no. She eventually, around 1994 was her last session. And she started working more in the administrative side of the business. Now she works for a film booking agency that books below the line people. She's much happier doing the accounting side of things. She got really tired of being an engineer. Mm -hmm. And again, she didn't have the same passion. And I'm not saying that as a negative. She just didn't have that the, the same drive that, that I can't escape. It's like a curse as well. <laughs> okay. So she's thrilled doing the administrative work for a company called the Scurus Agency. They book editors, production designers, directors of photography, makeup artists, set designers for first run features. That's the bulk of her work. And, and, you know, she has a job where she finishes and she's home for the evening. As a matter of fact, she hasn't left the house in 16 months now because she brought the whole office here. That's right. So she's been, she's been doing everything on Zoom and running the whole, she runs that company from here. Matter of fact, Tuesday is her first day back at the real office in Santa Monica. Oh, so back wow. So back to commuting again. And, you know, I think for, for her going back to her gig with her workmates and you getting this record, which is coming up for you, yeah, I think it's going to be very cathartic. I think it'll be very, you know, a lot of pent-up energy to get out there and, to and, get out there, and do right. the things we love. Now, balancing the family life, you know, my son's on his own, so it's just my wife and I. And... We make sure that nobody works beyond 7.30 or 8 in the evening at the outside. You know, I like to start early. I like to mix early and, and, and be done by 5 o'clock to keep it sane. I like to play with the dogs. I like to hike. Yeah. And you got to give your ears a break. When you mix, do you primarily prefer to mix at your, your studio there? I do. Yeah. I do now. Yeah. After mixing in all the greatest rooms in the world, I found that I get better results because I can I can really focus here in my own room. I got everything I need. Yeah. I, 
I don't have a big analog console, but I, I have a Yamaha DM2000 that I've been working on. And I have the very newest Pro Tools Ultimate Rig, HDX, and every plugin known to man, <laughs> you know. You know, and I don't go down too many gear rabbit holes on this show, but I'm just curious because sure. I see the console behind you there. Yeah. So you you come out of Pro Tools into this console. Yes. Do you just like, is it the tactile nature of that console that you enjoy? It's the tactile nature. And it, I know I could do like an S6, a, a Pro Tools controller, uh -huh. but still the bottom line is with that, the guys, you got to own one to know it. And I'm not really into dropping 65K for a console, for a controller for myself. I've been using Pro Tools since 1992, and I am so fast at a trackball and and keyboard here in front of me to start learning the, the S6. Again, I'm sure it's great, but I would have to own it. I can't walk into a room with, with a Pro Tools controller and know what I'm doing. But I know my I know my Yamaha DM2000 intimately, and it actually sums great. It sounds wonderful as a summing. Yeah, I still use all my EQ. I use all the EQ stuff in Pro Tools. I very rarely use an EQ on the board, but I do sum on it. All the signal comes into the console, D to D, out of the Pro Tools. I got 48 outputs into my console. Okay. On all my inserts, I have them retrofitted with an Apogee D to A to my outboard gear. So I use this analog outboard gear as well, which are all being fed by Apogee uh, D to A's. And whenever I want analog outboard gear, I just patch it on the channels I want it on. And I'm still, I'm, I'm still mixing on the console. And the console has 100% total recall. My outboard gear pretty much doesn't move other than I change reverb settings, but the compressors, you find the sweet spot and how hard to hit them. I rarely change those. Yeah. And I take, you know, iPhone pictures of everything and a recall instead of taking 40 seconds, it takes me five minutes. So on the console, <laughs> do you, do you synchronize the console to your Pro Tools rig for yes. automation purposes? Yes. yes. They're connected. The transport on the console runs Pro Tools and vice versa. They're, they're synchronized completely. Yeah. yeah. If I were to ever go back to having a console that's always attracted me, just the idea of these some of these Yamaha consoles like the DM2000 and, and, yeah. and others. Listen, Ed, Ed Cherney was mixing records on the same console for years. I know, now. I know. You know? <laughs> and it's funny because you can find them used for not a lot of money. About two grand or less Yeah, at this point, yeah. Well, people can find out more about you at stevesykes.com, I imagine. That's correct. Yes, my website. Because that's where I found uh, out about you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll include a link in the show notes, uh, audience, so you can go and read about Steve and uh, contact him if you uh, want him to mix anything or track anything or maybe ask him a question or email him and say hello and say you heard heard him on That'd the show. That'd be great. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I am going to make a point of coming down to a Wednesday lunch when you all start doing that again and show up in person. Oh, that would be great. Make sure that I know you're coming because I will make it my point to be there. Excellent. I don't go every Wednesday because Wednesday is a day half the time I'm working on something here and I can't break away. I know. Well, I've got so many friends in L LA and you know, it's a short flight. I can come down there. I can be back on the plane by the end of the day. It's like, you know, maybe a hundred bucks round trip. Right. Right. So, mm -hmm. 
I see no reason why I shouldn't, but I will, I will reach out when that happens. That'd be great. That would be great. Well, I hope I've given you enough to work with. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, yeah. You've given me a whole bunch to work with. I know that there's a lot to a person's career in your case. And in an hour, it's, it's tough to squeeze in all. It's tough because I'm thinking there's all sorts of things I've completely skipped over, but it, it doesn't matter. Well, you know what this is good <laughs> There's for? There's too much. <laughs> it's, it's good for a return visit is what it's good for. Okay, that's great. <laughs> so we'll have to have you back. But Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Steve Sykes here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you like the show, I know I always say this, head on over to iTunes. But this time, do it, though, if you haven't done it. And, and I'd really appreciate it. Uh, leave a positive review. You know, you can leave five stars. You can write something if you feel so compelled. Either way, it helps with the show. And I would really appreciate it. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo and the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, of course, with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.